3CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia and it's Mother's Day so happy Mother's Day to everybody out there. This morning we've had a few little hiccups along the way but Chloe Foster who is horticulturalist of great worth and a horticultural lecturer and I are both in here. Millie is on her way but her car was hit last night so she's a bit late and one of our producers is sick. However, we're still here and we're still looking forward to the show. I hope you are all having an excellent time. Good morning, Chloe. Good morning, Virginia. We will get there. <laughs> the beauty of live radio keeps us all on our feet, doesn't it? <laughs> it certainly does. I almost ran my car off the road this morning watching the hot air balloons. Yes. Uh, along, when I was you know, going along the freeway coming in. I could I could literally just watch them for hours, just floating around. It's absolutely beautiful. I was coming down one day, and one of them landed on the road, at ho- oh, just off the road, next to the road at Wandon. Oh, I nearly really? died. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm too scared to go up in one of those. I, am, I have a height phobia. I am way too scared. I want my feet firmly planted on the ground. Mm. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was in a hit and run many years ago on my bicycle, and ever since then I even have trouble going up on ladders. Yeah, okay. I think some part of me doesn't trust the, the ground to stay there. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, no, the the hot air balloons looked absolutely beautiful this morning and we must say Happy Mother's Day and my mother, Debbie, will be listening this morning as she does every week even when I'm not on air. Oh, isn't she good? She's a very good mum and I love her dearly and she loves her garden dearly too, so I love her that little bit more. (laughs) Well, it's important that all the gardening mums, I hope, are having a cup of tea in bed. Yes, or are still asleep, to be perfectly honest. (laughs) (laughs) Which we both would like to be. I'd love to be curled up listening to the show right now. (laughs) But we're in here and it's going to be a beautiful day. It's one of the busiest days for horticulture and the nursery industry because it's Mother's Day and everyone buys plants for their mums. Which is an excellent idea. It is an excellent idea. Lavenders go out the door, chrysanthemums go out the door. Um, actually, I was at the Cranbourne Gardens yesterday and they had their, the Growing Friends had their plant sale for the first time in about, I'll be 18 months. I don't think they had an autumn plant sale last year. I think it got cancelled when yes, the pandemic course. hit Australia. And there was people safely distanced everywhere. It was absolutely brilliant. It was so wonderful to see all the Cranbourne Friends again, people who hadn't seen for well over a year. And there was, everyone had got the message that the plant sale was on. They had heaps of stock. And the stock was actually a little bit more advanced than what it usually is because a lot of the growing friends, I don't know whether you'd heard, in lockdown last year, obviously the volunteers couldn't go into the botanic gardens. The members of the growing friends took a lot of the stock home um. and were propagating and looking after everything and potting up all, their, all the growing friends' stock from home. So it's remote nursery work, if I've ever heard of it. 
Really, that's interesting because I don't think that's what happened at the Melbourne Gardens. I, I think they are going to have a sale. They're hoping to have a sale in a couple of months. Right. And they've got a lot of quite leggy stock because it has been left. I suppose the lucky thing is that we haven't... We have had plenty of rain fairly consistently. Yes, yeah. So think because there's ju- just a few gar- gardeners, horse mm. staff, who have been trying to keep mm. a bit of it alive, I think. Yeah, I, I, from my understanding, most of the um, growing friends, t- they, they took everything before they had to be out of there. I think they took as much as they could out. And the garden staff, the botanic garden staff, I think were using that nursery for some of their stock as well just as an overflow and to space things out or, or whatever whatever they were doing. So uh, the nursery did get used, but the volunteers weren't able to um, uh, to go on, on site. The Melbourne Gardens was on the on the gardening show last night on Channel 2. Gardening Australia? Yeah, Gardening Australia. I saw Costa was walking around Guilfoyle's Volcano. Yes, which he didn't say where he was. I find it very irritating that he doesn't often doesn't even say which garden he's in. Well, we'll have to talk to Millie when she gets in. <laughs> But it did make me realise, as he's wandering around, just how well I know that garden. Yeah. You know, I know it like the back of my hand. It's an incredibly iconic garden. And from the... he was up, See, so he was up in Guilfoyle's Volcano, which is the highest point in the gardens there at the top yes. corner of Anderson mm. Street, yes, is it? Yes, that's right. Which looks out over... To, over. You've got Government House in the background, and you've got the city buildings behind, behind that as well. So mm. it looks out, I don't know... And you can see the MCG and... You can, it's a fabulous view from up it there. It is a beautiful view, yeah. So I'm doing a walk at half past one, so I might wander up there today. Good idea. Yes. Well, the Sturt Desert Peas are flowering up there at the moment still? I don't know. I haven't been up there for a few so weeks. So we did an excursion there the week before Easter with a group of students, and we went to Fitzroy Gardens, and then we went to the Melbourne Botanic Gardens, and we took them up to Guilfoyle's Volcano to talk about the water reticulation system that they have there and also just to have a look at the type of flora they've got planted at, at the volcano and have a look at the arid garden. So the Sturt Desert peas were in flower and just trailing down you know, that slope. It was beautiful. I will definitely and, go looking for them today. Yeah, and, and they shared some photos on the Instagram this week, so I think they're still flowering. But also the Seba was flowering oh, as well. Yes. I can't remember the common name of that plant. Um, yeah, well, it's the it's the capoc. It's the it's the thing that one of the Seba cousins, one of the Sebas, was used to make pillows in the old days. Oh, they didn't use the thorns from the trunk. No, <laughs> it, it is it is such an extraordinary tree. You have those bright, bright, bright lolly pink flowers, yes. and then this vicious trunk with so vicious all the way up. Absolutely incredible these trees and. Like these thorns, if people aren't aware, it's not a commonly planted plant for sort of for good reason, but it's just like when it's in flower, it's covered in this fluorescent pink. The thorns, though, they're some of them get to two centimeters long, and they are like you could kill someone with those thorns. They are vicious. Absolutely yeah, they're absolutely vicious. vicious. Absolutely vicious. So, Guilford's volcano was looking absolutely fantastic when I was there last time, and. And the new arid garden looks absolutely beautiful as well, with the cacti um, collection that was donated. That, that Do you know the backstory to that? One of the gardeners was driving somewhere around Shepparton and saw it in a paddock and drove in and said, oh, how come you've got all those cacti? And 
the person who had them said, oh, you know, I'm in my 80s and I don't think my family wants them. I don't know what's going to happen to them. And, and so the story goes. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes. And it is fantastic yes. because his father, I think, had collected them in the 40s. He had supported a, um, a trip to South America to oh. collect cacti and special things. Mm. And that's how come they all ended up there in a farm somewhere near Shepparton. Right. And Meg and her husband had been there and bought things, succulents from him many, many, many years ago. So they used to propagate and sell from there as well. Oh, right. But, um, yes. It's it's so diverse and obviously getting advanced cacti like that because they are such slow growers. It's it's the new parts of the garden, the sensory garden and the cactus the garden just is beautiful. Fabulous. And Emma Hurd, who does our phones, is the landscape architect and helped who, who out drew on the project. All up. Yeah. yeah, she drew up the plans. Yeah, we will get Emma on air one day. We must. <laughs> and Millie has walked in. I'm going to do that very noisy microphone thing. I'm sorry. It's through, you know it's through CR when you can't make any adjustments without the entire without world knowing. <laughs> yeah. Apologies. Uh, yes, a, a little bit of a, a hiccup this morning, but. Um, yeah, been a long time since I've driven down the hill to, to for an early morning 3CR, so thanks everyone for having me. Yeah. What a gorgeous morning it is. Yes. And it is so, um, you know, like the last couple of weeks we've just had those autumn days we all dream about, isn't it? Yep. Like when you're in the nursery or you're working in your garden on a windy, wet spring day and, and hearing everyone go on about how good spring is and you're in your mind you're like, no, <laughs> no, spring! Way overrated. <laughs> exactly. Way overrated. So, I just think yeah. autumn is... The Time of year. It's Absolutely. just been so gorgeous, yes. and um, and yeah, such a such a pe- pleasure to hurdle down the hill. And I mean, it is. I, I heard you as I walked in um, ragging my show, so thanks. <laughs> yeah, That's my full time job. It's constructive feedback. That's what oh it sure, because we don't get any of that actually <laughs> <laughs> from our you know million Facebook followers. Oh my and, God, yeah, uh, some look. of those comments you get. But didn't you actually get a story about the botanic yes. gardens and the fact it was the botanic gardens and its hundred and seventy fifth anniversary this year and. We wanted so, him to say that he was at Guildford's volcano, though. Well, but it wasn't and about the volcano. <laughs> but all, no, he <laughs> was. At, it was about the. But no, it was about the botanic gardens. I'm not going to hear anything. No, more. no, no. <laughs> he can't name every region. That's what the map's for. <laughs> no, it, <laughs> but was it was excellent. But yeah. I do think sometimes I'm watching, and I think I wonder where he is, and I never some, find out. Well, there's reasons why we don't tell you sometimes. So yeah. sometimes it's a private garden. Sometimes we're doing a story there next week, uh, and we're utilising that garden as a location. Because it's it's good for, for our, like yeah, because mm. we need to, because yes. we need a, a location. Sometimes we've been there quite recently, and something's fallen over, and so we're back there again. So you know, like there's lots of like, I guess that's the point is that for us, we know sometimes people are curious, yes, I'm and we try and tell you. But but the problem is if we say I'm at this amazing place, and then you don't get a story we'll get even more emails. Oh, really? So there's always, there is always mm, reasoning yeah. behind mm. why we do or we don't, I guess. Yeah. Sometimes we just run out of time. So, you know, we might think we want to do a story there or we'll do a little story in the links, you know, that'll be great. But then in the episode, can you believe it, an hour of gardening every week isn't actually enough. No, it's never <laughs> like we're enough. always dropping, yeah, dropping <laughs> things or we don't have time for that. We drop entire stories almost every episode. No, 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 don't have time. Take that out and put in a tip and... You know, so it is It is a big puzzle, but we're, we're really aware of that. And it's funny, I, I um, a couple of weeks ago, last week, um, a little little tip went to air where I talked about growing Brussels sprouts because they're, they're a hard thing to grow. And, and we filmed that probably two years ago now. 
and um and you know but it's right at this time or it probably was filmed a little bit later it might have been kind of late may mm. and um you know i'm saying you know the key is actually starting them in november in seed and getting them in the ground early and and i left an event i did an event last week for whitehorse city council and at, when i got home i found this little note in the bottom of my basket which said last night you did brussels sprouts but it said to plant them three months ago talk to the team about timing <laughs> and and it was funny because it, last year i tried to put it into that slot i said can i put it in here because that's my other job is you know making that puzzle and um and, and, you know, we all tried and we watched it and it just it couldn't, people emotionally can't get there unless you explicitly tell them, you know, like I'm showing, I want to show you this now, mm. but you've got to, do, you know, like unless I'd sort of said it or then, or Costa says it in the link, we tried and yes. it didn't work. So then we've had to do that. And, but, you know, I mean. I can that, understand that that is actually really difficult because it's showing a, a piece of completely blank bit of soil. Yeah, so mm. underneath that soil are seeds. Yeah, yeah, or, yeah exactly. Camera work. So we, you know, it is. It's such a. It's such an interesting challenge, having a show that has to, you know, like Relate Friday night. My my pond story went to air, and we really debated that because it was obviously shot late summer. You know, a lot of your aquatic plants, like many plants, are sort of going into their downturn right yeah. now. And but, you know, the idea, and particularly because I was in a, a native plant pond and I actually use native fish which I knew was something that it would get a lot of people thinking and so you kind of go the idea even the idea of growing Brussels sprouts that you have to think about it a long time before you're thinking about it mm. that idea is something that I think gardeners bank those ideas and they just bubble them away you know sometimes it might take you three years to to kind of make that project that you've been thinking about or work out how you can create this thing that you can't even really conceptualise. It's not like I'm going to plant that tree. It's like I've got this idea that I want to incorporate this into my garden, but I haven't got the space, or I would like to do more of this, but, you know, it's a bit cold here for doing that. You know, it takes time to work things out. So sometimes we do put things to air that are, you know, because we need to. We need some colour or we need some practical or we need something native or Mm. we need some food plant or, you know, whatever it is to get the mix right. But... But I guess that it's like when people get upset with us for not being perfectly prescriptive for what they can do every week. It's like there's a whole section at the end of the show which tells you what to do. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the rest of it, you know, take it as inspiration with a bit of information and, uh, you this know, we do the, our best. This is the 3CR Garden Show. You, I am Virginia Hayward and you are listening to Chloe Foster and Millie Ross. And Millie is talking about Gardening Australia, which is on Channel 2. And we'll... There's Forever. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> No, the program we're talking about will be repeated today at one o'clock. It will, Gardening Australia. It is, um, and we are we are on air till we are having another six week break this year, which um, was a blessing last year. It was programmed to happen before COVID got in our way, but I'm sure as everyone has talked about and heard, like the logistics of making an hour of television across mm. the country <laughs> is, uh, is a challenge anyway, but it, it became a, a big challenge last year. So it was a bit of a blessing that we had that break, but we're doing it again this year. So we're on air till the end of June, mm-hmm. um, and then we have six weeks break, and I think uh, Michael's last season of Dream Gardens will go to air, and then I think there's a new program the ABC are mucking around with. Oh, good. Um, to, to, because, you know, we're a pretty popular slot old gardening on a Friday night. Yes, you gardeners slot. will be happy to know. I'm usually in bed. <laughs> Getting ready for Saturday. <laughs> Friday night, yeah. I'm usually just wrecked. <laughs> Catch up on a Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, yeah, but, uh, oh, look, uh, everyone, everyone in this room, and I'm sure everyone listening knows how, 
how popular gardening is. And, um, and well, it, last is interesting, year, it is interesting how little there is in the media, really, given how popular gardening is. Do you think so? Well, there's only one show on the telly. Well, there's, there's only the one dedicated ones, gardening yeah. show. Well, yeah, one dedicated show. Yeah, but there's, I mean, there's quite a lot of gardening. I think a lot of people try and do gardening, but, I mean, we're, we're very privileged in that we sit in a non-commercial space. I mean, that is the difficulty. Like, Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, and so for us, we can really, um, you, we can really stretch what we, and, you know, this sometimes people get a bit, oh, what, you know, that's not about gardening that we might talk about. I remember once, you know, doing a story at Kakadu and I read an email from a fellow who's like, oh, what does what are seasons, Indigenous seasons, have to do with gardening? And I thought, whoa, if you don't know, I can't really help you. Let me No, you don't. You just go, well, I reckon in a couple of years, mate, you'll get it, you know, and you'll go, oh, I noticed that was flowering. That must mean it's time to plant my rocket. Or whatever, however it is that you apply that to your, you know, that understanding or that extra little bit of observation to your own garden but um i think that is so important too that we have to recognize that a lot of our garden history is very very white and very imported from northern europe oh, it, it's compl- yeah. the four seasons are completely irrelevant to australia not just in the south but more, more particularly in the north i really don't use those seasons all I have the wet season and the dry season and there's all the other Indigenous seasons that, that come along with that in the north and south of Australia as well. So it's... Yeah, I mean, I think it's like all of Australia and all of Australian culture. It's a very exciting time to, to love plants and to love the landscape. Like, mm. it always is. But I think, um, you know, for me, because I'm so curious, uh, there's, there's just so much perspective to understand. It's funny, I'm... I put a post on Instagram. I don't know if Simon Rickard will be out of bed. I'm sure he will. But I thought I'd go a bit Rickard, a little bit controversial on the Insta. (laughs) And I posted the other week about how much autumn leaves kind of have mixed feelings about them. And I love what they do in, in that they show me how easily I can shift my own perspective in how I feel about something. So, you know, I live in a, in a cool climate town. There's a lot of autumn, autumn mm-hmm. trees. You know, often I'm like walking around on a, the last sunny days and you just, you're just reveling in the beauty of, you know, even just, even just this, the big old elms, you know, that mm. beautiful yellow and, you know, walking around seeing these incredible colours and then sometimes I'll go, you know, go go out for a walk in the bush and and come back into town and I sort of sometimes, you know, when you come into, I mean, it happens in Bright when you come, come down out of the mountains through those beautiful eucalypt forests yeah. down into that town and it looks like someone's just dropped colour everywhere and it yeah. can look depending on the perspective and the frame of mind you're in, the way your heart feels and all those things, it can look a bit out of place. Mm. Like, it can look really out of place. And I'm not saying one's bad or not. I was just saying, for me, I have mixed feelings about that kind of European landscape. And I do yeah. these days as well. Yeah. yeah. But have you seen the furs on Instagram um, of the Nothophagus morii in Tasmania with their orange colour at the moment? Oh, I haven't seen them, but we managed to film a story oh, about, fantastic. well, Gunnii, actually. The but, Gunnii, yeah. Um, at Mount Field, and it's something uh, we've been trying to film a story forever, but the, the logistics of, you know, director flying in, crew being booked, presenter being booked, all of these things are really tricky to get right with the timing. Mm. And so I just sent a director and a crew, and I said, you pick the day. 
you organise it, yeah. and so yeah, it won't go to air till next year. But yeah, I mean, it's like it's like Australia's, you know, that people go to Japan to see the cherry blossom. Yeah, it's it's this amazing event. They're incredible, and it's the most beautiful. Co- I mean, every deciduous tree changes different shades of yellow, orange, or red. But what this North North Vegas does is goes this orangey, but then bright yellowy gold. It's absolutely stunning, and it's just this haze. And that's sort of the only group of well, there's one other little little genus of winter deciduous Australian trees. The melias, yeah, the melias, yeah, that's it. Yeah, but and and it is quite a unique thing. And it's like I, I don't want to debate whether autumn trees are good or bad, or whether it's native versus exotic. It just for me is this great moment where I can see things from two sides, yeah. and I can realise how what we bring to gardening. Whether we want to grow food, whether we want to grow natives, whether we want to grow exotic, you know, all of these, this baggage that we bring to gardening can completely shift the way we are seeing, seeing what's in front of us. And, you know, I think that's a really useful exercise for me personally to know that there's always different ways you can approach it and different mm. ways you can see it. I mean, we all know different people think different things are beautiful, you know. Absolutely. This is the 3CR Garden Show. If you would like to ring us, our, our talkback number is 94190155 and our text number is 0488809855. I'm Virginia Hayward and you're listening to Chloe Foster and Millie Ross on 3CR. One of the things I'm doing at the moment is pruning quite a lot. Fun. I've, there's so much to do. Is this your post-summer flowering plants? Well, I started the roses because there's about a thousand of them. <laughs> I mean, there's not, but you know, it just seems such a huge job. And then I'm pruning some of the salvies. But I, I come to, and I'm pulling things out. Stephen came to stay a couple of weeks ago. He said that's got to go, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was a scream because his garden is so overplanted. It's so full. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I highly so respect that. I highly <laughs> yeah. respect it. What do you mean I don't have room for those 400 plants? <laughs> yeah. Every nursery you go to, oh, I'll just get one. But and pruning, you walk out with four. <laughs> pruning the salvias at the moment is quite difficult because the bees are so prolific. And I can't cut things back if the bees are using them. No, because they need food in cool seasons. Food. But that's one of the reasons I've got so many salvias. Because mm. I have got so many salvias that are in flower at the moment. Pink icicles. Well, we were just talking about that before air, weren't we? Yes. You gave me a... It, it, did it pop up in your compost or you... <laughs> she struck in it in her compost. Dump me up a weed. Pretty much. <laughs> I said to Virginia, I was like, I, I would like one of your pink ice, salvia pink icicles, please. Can you just give me a, a cutting, a stem? She's like, oh, whatever. And you chuck some in the compost or something. It struck up roots. We dug it up. I chucked it in my garden. And this is less than a year ago and it's already almost two metres tall. <laughs> It's so funny, those confidence-building plants. So you, <laughs> yes. I laugh about that, these canners that I've been shoving a shovel under for 20 years between rental houses. And, yeah. You know, I'm almost at the point where, you know, and great for growing compost. I just, you know, put put a clump down near the compost bin so there's always something green to cut and chuck in. But uh, I gave a whole lot of clumps to some friends who, you know, big block of land, just finished building their house. And, you know, it wasn't even just the success of growing the canner. It was the success of that grew them as gardeners. You know, grew their confidence, <laughs> yeah. I thought. You know, it's like, yeah, you're a bit of a weed, but See, gee, I'm, you've really helped them yeah. feel like they can do I it. I find canners. I've, I've put canners in. I've got canners that have been in for 10 years, and they've never got higher than... You're so... 
seven inches. Your I'm, soil's probably too hard or dry or I something. Think so they love I, the wet, don't yes, they? Yes, I think I have. I, it's too dry. It depends on the canner. Yeah. yeah, it's. I've got two that I've been carrying around because they're so reliable and so good. So one is not coping with the the cold climate as well, and it's sort of retrieving just what would you know seeding a bit every year it's just not quite as bold but now at the end of the season it's pretty gorgeous big well we've had round, such a wet striped, season too. striped mm. leaf um and the other is just a big clumping red flower so one doesn't flower at all really mm. um and the other one does flower and i i deadhead it a lot because it's got a lot of seed on it mm. um but it you know the honey eaters love it mm. like we just watch them come in and sort of drag off on the flowers and and of course it, it you know it has been that great space filler in the short term but now you know you kind of I, I use it as a yeah a short-term filler and then long term you start to kind of delete these things a little bit well that's exactly them. what's happening in my garden and my garden is now 16 years old and I've had to take out things that I love Mm. I've, had, I've taken out a camellia. I never thought I'd take out a camellia, <laughs> but I do. I counted them. I've got thirty-one. That's I'm a lot. Not not thirty-one different it's a camellias, game for yeah. but thirty-one yeah, plants. Yeah. And you know, it's too many. Yes. And some of them are too close together. And and so I'm taking things out because the gar- But I tell you, the canna that's absolutely berserk in my place is the edible canna. I keep trying to get rid of it, and I mm. can't. It what part of it is back. edible? The the Bottom, the root. The root. Many, mm. many of them are edible, actually. There are, uh, most of them are cultivars, I think, classified now as, or just varieties of edulis. Um, but I think some would probably be better than others. But, mm. yeah, arrowroot is made from a canna, oh, canna root, right. so um, the flower. And, and then, um, yeah, so many are, uh, are, are edible. Or they might be even reclassified as Indica now. I have to have to Indica look is a name, but Edulis is the first yeah, one. Yeah, that, yeah, that's Edulis. But that I think they're all Indica name. now. But um, but I'd have to look back through my canon nomenclature. <laughs> Stephen, I'm sure, will be all over that next week. But um, yeah, I, I you know, like I think those confidence builders are worth growing, and and you know, you're always cautious around um, the way. Plants might behave in your garden or in your garden when you leave, which is probably mm. the more important thing for active gardeners. We've got our um, first call, which is Anne from Northcote. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, Virginia. I wanted to ask about my Eileen Patterson Petosporums, which have got sooty mould. And just to give them a bit of um, nutrition... I don't know whether they're natives or not natives for my, you know, feeding program. So um, I also have to want to let you know that um, I rang a few weeks ago asking what could be the issue and and was offered the suggestion that the gum trees that the council have put in has grown over the top and perhaps it's dropped some of the, um, you know, the the, um, the sugar from the flowers. So I dropped the sugar from the flowers onto the petosporum, which is a hedge, and the ants have come up and it's all become very mouldy and infested. And I've I've cut back the tree and I think that was exactly what the problem was. So I think the gardening program has saved my petosporum hedge, (laughs) which I'm very grateful for. But it's still got the sooty mould. Um, If it's got the ants, I'm going to take a punt and say it's got scale. It's quite common. Like black scale on the stems on petosporums wouldn't wouldn't be uncommon, which would cause all of those other other issues. Mm-hmm. So I've pleached yeah. the the 
um, the row, and which I have done for quite a few years now, so I can get to the base of the, um, the trunks. Um, do I just keep spraying the oil on and hope that it'll eliminate the Yeah, oil? I mean, I'm, I'm actually amazed at having been a gardener in Melbourne for a long time through the kind of millennium drought and seen so many potosporum hedges and plantings that really, really um, declined and often got scale and mm-hmm. often didn't respond well to a hard prune. I'm amazed at how well they respond to a hard prune in my cold climate. And it really just highlighted to me moving moving there that, you know, when you and you see plants, I you know, they're from New Zealand, essentially. Most mm-hmm. of the potosporums that we grow in our gardens are bred from some species that are kiwi plants. Yeah. They like a cool quite moist um, environment. And so, I, you know, I think they do stress a little bit sometimes in our urban environments um, long term. In small gardens where there's not a lot of moisture, get, you know, often we've and got them in a little strip on the edge of the driveway or something. There'd be competition not, from that gum tree as well in totally. our garden. Totally. So I, I, I think it, I've, I've, I've got more respect for them now. I've seen them in New Zealand than I had as a gardener <laughs> sort of loading 10 into trolleys for 10 years. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, look, I, I would say they do need to be treated with love and respect, like a cool climate plant. So, you know, a reasonable amount of moisture, good mulch layer, all of that basic stuff will be really beneficial for them. So you can keep spraying that pest, but a stressed-out plant is mm-hmm. probably going to continue to suffer. So, yeah, I would I would do that spray program probably, what would you say? I would say every three weeks, three times should be about where you stop. If you mm-hmm. have to keep going you've got other issues going on. One of the best types of pest and disease control is to keep your plants healthy. So that's mulching. Um, you might want to give it a, I think we might have told you last time, a drink of seaweed fertiliser, maxicropolis sea salt or something, or um, yeah. one of the fish emulsions as well. Uh, so no sort of, food really, just... just Sometimes um, feeding stressed plants doesn't do them mm, any better. They don't yeah. necessarily have the ability to take up Take it more up. fertilizer. Yeah. The what those seaweed uh, fertilizers do is help strengthen cell walls. So it'll just help the roots mm. be a little bit stronger, and maybe take a bit more. And you could fertilize. Um, you could spray the foliage, but I think because you've got scale and there's a fair bit of humidity around there anyway, I'd probably tend to leave the foliage alone, just to sort of reduce the and humidity I, I think, around the I plant. I think this is a problem this year because we have had more rain than, mm. than is our yeah. normal, and so the humidity is up on quite. A, I mean, I've got scale on things that I don't usually get scale yeah. on. Mm. And, and with either the scale or sooty mould that you've got, and it might take a little while for that to fall off and, and um, not mm. be, I don't know, gripped active. onto the plant, active on the plant. So, yeah. yeah, it might take a little while for it to sort of get washed off by rain and anything else that comes along. Yeah, but I, yeah. Think, I think just, I would, how old are they, Anne? Are they, have they been in forever? Uh, they're maybe uh, 10 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you, I, I would think you've got to get 15, 20 years out of a pitot hedge or a, a row of them. You'd hope mm. to anyway, and, and sometimes longer. But, yeah, I would – I mean, I'm a bit of a cut-your-losses kind of gardener, and I'm proven quite wrong often. You know, I'm <laughs> like, nah, I just cut it right back. Oh, you're going to have to pull it out. And then and then it comes back. So it sounds like you've done all the right things, and if you can just kind of support its care. You yeah, should know, support it. You should know by early summer whether it's going to – really pull yeah, itself right. together and and oh. and be a good plant or whether you get to start to think about reimagining that whole uh, area, yeah. which is also exciting. 
<laughs> I know it doesn't seem so, so at the time, but <laughs> re rethinking is one, good. Yes, I I sort of prepared my mental. Yeah. Yes. But the <laughs> yeah. scale. You prepared yourself emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> the scale. Um, like it's quite moist today, mm. and we've had a bit of rain over the last bit, you know. Yeah. So, um, is the scale a mouldy kind of scale, or is it like, will the sun help, or will the water help, or sun, will the oil help? Sun and wind will help. Airflow. Dry the Airflow. little guys out. Yeah. Mm. But it, it's essentially a, an insect, a sucking insect, and the mould is growing on the excrement of the insect. And maybe, mm, you know, okay, if you've yeah. got that overhanging um, eucalypt dropping some lerp, you know, you might be yeah. getting that honeydew drop from that as well. But the, the yeah. mould is like a secondary problem to the pest in most most circumstances. Yep. So if you can focus on the health of the tree and just knocking that pest back to the point where that natural kind of health restores, then then you should overcome the mould is, is how it works. Mm. Mm. Okay. And so the ants are involved don't, in that Don't too. even think about food. Just no, um, think no, about, don't think mm. about food. All right, lovely. Cup of tea, maybe. Thanks. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Cup of tea and a biscuit. That's all. No, a bit of compost. <laughs> Cup of tea and a ginger biscuit. <laughs> all right, a bit more water, I think, because um, well, when it's dry, I don't. Yeah. It's very inconsistent, and it, it suffers a lot of heat where it is, and yeah, just hot just wind giving, and just, all that. I'd give it a few deep soaks as it comes into kind of growth. For sure. Mm. I, I, hope All right, that's ladies. Been, I hope that's been helpful, Anne. Lovely. Thank you so much. And the programs, I know it's going to be a ripper. <laughs> Thanks, Anne. No pressure. <laughs> Never any pressure. Never, Never any, any pressure. pressure. We've still got some calls coming Oops, through, Jim. We do. Hello. We have a wrong green button, my friend. Alex. Oh, no, not again. In Beaconsfield. Hello. Hello, Alex. I think line eight is not there. We may have hung up yeah. on Alex. Alex yeah. Smart, we know him. Please call back. We know <laughs> we'll get you Alex later. from Beaconfield. Um, oh, look, it, for, for those, the magic. We've got another call on. If so people do want to give us a ring, you can call on 94190155 and have a chat ski on air. It's, um, we, we now have a call from Terry. We're just going to grab Albion. you, Terry. Hey. Hello, Terry. Are you there? No, I think, have you? <laughs> I think tech I, support is imminent. Yeah, tech support is coming in. It's Let's a, keep you going. Know, in the old days, you could have lent, lent across the console. We've got but now we've got, we've got spit screens, so we can't get to her, everyone. I could, uh, we, doing the, um, doing the juggle. I, 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 Terry, uh, I can see on, on the screen um, that uh, Terry wants to talk about Pygmy Perch, which I am very excited Terry's called in to ask. You there, Terry? No, no. Maybe we might. Maybe we should um, get Terry to call back too. We might be having a little bit of a, a problem with the the phone line. But look, I'm I'm going to preempt the call. Go on for Friday it. night, I did a story on Gardening Australia where I made a little pond in a bathtub. I've had this bathtub for ages, yep. but I had been told in no uncertain terms I could not have a pond if I couldn't deal with the mosquito situation. <laughs> so it took me a long time to solve this, but I did use um, so. You know, made just a sweet little pond, you know, just for the fun of it and to grow more plants. I mean, let's face it, water's a great way to suddenly have a completely different environment in your garden. And to grow, grow totally different plants. Totally different yeah. plants. More plants, people. Um, and to overcome the mosquito problem, but also to uh, 
piqued my interest, I decided I wanted to try and find some native fish. So I've had goldies in the past. Uh, we had goldfish called Julie for about 10 years, a succession <laughs> of species, and actually my best friend still has Julies. Um, they're all called Julie. Uh, but, and they're great fish. They're mm. really robust. Um, they can, you know, if you're lucky, you get, end up with the little brown ones out of the oh, breeding. So and how big do they get? Oh, goldfish. No, I'm talking about goldfish. Oh, the goldfish, sorry. So, you know, they are great fish, but they are an they, exotic fish. And they eat frogs. And they eat frogs, exactly. So they're great for keeping mosquito populations down, but they're very um, very good predators. Mm. And also, of course, when people are sick of uh, their fish or sometimes they can't keep their fish anymore, sometimes they get sloshed down in the local creek and then they end up in as the local a, waterway. And mm. there's a terrible pest. Terrible pest. So I decided I wanted to... Have we got Terry? Should we grab him before I preempt his question? No, I don't think we have I Terry. Think we're a little bit confused. Oh, on, on line three. I can see line three flashing there with Terry. No, I think no. we still can, are having... There's line three there. Hello, Terry? Hello, Terry? No, no we're, we're losing problem. it. Yes. Um, so I decided I wanted to get some native fish, and I did a lot of research because, as I said, I live just over the top of the Great Dividing Range. We get frost after frost after frost after frost, and as far as I could read, there's quite a few native fish that are available in Western Australia, in right. New South Wales, in some of those more temperate climates, there's a greater range and a greater diversity of fish yep. um, that are available. But in, in the cold climate, it's tricky. So I did lots of research. I rang lots of people. Uh, sp- you know, my jo- I'm a researcher. I, I can ring anyone. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, entire privilege of the job. And... Um, did lots of research and got the advice that southern pygmy perch, which is an endangered fish in Australia, used to be very widespread on the eastern eastern seaboard, um, occurs you know really really widely, was the most suited species for a cold climate pond. So I spent a lot of time trying to get some fish through the nursery trade. They do turn up every now and then, so they're an endangered fish, but they they still are bred in captivity from a number of different populations mm. and and come through. You know they're like a five buck fish. They're not expensive. They're just hard to get. Five bucks is quite a lot if you've got... For a little fish. But you don't need yeah. a lot of fish. You just it need depends three how big or four fish. It yeah. depends how big your pond is. That's yeah. true, but you've got to start somewhere. So mm. you can also buy buy fish and large quantities from, from people who provide dam and, and mm. you know those sorts of stocking. But it, it did prove quite difficult to get the fish. And I know there's going to be a million people who want to know where I bought the fish. And to be honest, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, I did buy them. Well, they can do some research like you did your research. Exactly. And I, I guess, you know, again, this but kind so of But so, Millie, why are you not going to tell people? Well, because I, I, she doesn't want to be swamped. Right. And she is, she is someone who supplies the nursery trade and sells fish. So if you want native fish, you can find native fish. But I'm just not going to start banding the name of the business around without her, her telling, you know, like particularly the Gardening Australia, you know. A million people saw that little fish mm. on, on Friday night. And so actually where I got them was through one of the breeding programs. But the fascinating thing about this was I was looking for these fish for ages and then I just I go I go a different direction I always try and find out and what I, what I found out about this little fish in my investigations was how much work is going on to restore fish habitat mm. and to bring these little fish back so the southern pygmy perch you can buy just a generic southern pygmy perch for your pond and there are quite a few people breeding native fish mm. they're available seasonally um, not not all the time. They're not yeah. like a goldfish, although apparently goldfish are not being bred at the same rate. Um, that's a really interesting story, but they've right. been quite hard to get too. But um, 
what what is happening with with works across Victoria and you know a number of different catchment management authorities are involved is they're trying to restore fish habitat and for me personally I went up to look at a project out of Bendigo Bendigo Creek used to be known as the chain of ponds pre-gold mining mm. um, and you know chain of ponds it's really really expressive uh, that is exactly what it was. Thinking it was there's a, a lot of ponds coming into exactly. one area. Exactly. It's like, well, or just like a chain of billabongs. And, yeah. and giving a whole lot of different habitats, the running habitat and the still habitat. Absolutely. And, you know, of course, that creek was completely annihilated through the gold, gold mining area. Yeah. I mean, you will still see people panning for gold on the side of the creek in suburbia in Bendigo. It's incredible. <laughs> and, and the guy, Mark Tui, who looks after the natural areas, told me, mate, they find 100 bucks of gold. It cost me $5,000 to fix it. <laughs> You know, the damage that's happening. But they've been doing incredible work restoring fish habitat, specifically for this little fish, um, in some of the areas through Bendigo and replanting habitat. And he said, the best way I can describe the habitat that little southern pygmy perch like is you can't get through. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that's great. And so, you know, there's all of this amazing work that's going on in fish habitat. And let's face it, it might just be a little fish, right? People just think it's just a little fish, but that is... It's a hell of a lot more than just a little fish. It's a hell of a lot more in the, in the scheme of our big systems, and they're fantastic indicators of environmental health, mm. of water health. And let's face it, without those two things, we don't have anything. We do not have the capacity to exist on this planet. So it was just such an exciting sort of train, and I'm really hoping to do a story about that. The more in- interesting thing is my little pygmy perch, uh, north of the Great Dividing Range lineage. So there are within this breeding work, there are very distinct genetic groups of pygmy perch. There's one called Bass lineage, which is south of the divide. Mm. There's one called uh, mine is the Murray Goulburn lineage, I think, and then I think there's one that's out east as well. So that's a lot of genetics to preserve, isn't it? And there's people yeah. doing this work. That's they're, great. They're, and so in my river, there are pygmy perch, but they were likely brought in by bait fishermen, and they're the wrong lineage. So, yeah. you know, like it's, it's this really fantastic thing. I, I love this. You start thinking about one little thing, and then suddenly this whole mm. world of information and amazing work going on comes mm. up in, the, in, in your sphere. And terribly important. And I think putting native fish into your ponds is just incredibly important. Let's have a go and see if we can get Sharon. Sharon, are you there? Virginia. Oh. Here's some... I reckon you go around. Sharon, are you there? So, Jean, it's the round green button. Yes, I know. All right, we're double, we're double thinking. It is so important. And I tell you, if people want to do a little bit more reading, there's a fantastic project coming out of um, the Catchment Management Authority. I think it's the North Regional, and they're calling it the Magnificent Six. The, the scientist I spoke to said, we really do need to find one more fish and call it the Magnificent Seven. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's six fish species they're really focusing on uh, that are endangered. And um, they are, you know, they're really looking at ways they can improve catchment management. They want landholders to get involved. They're looking for private dams and private waterways to actually 
build the capacity to breed these fish. So, I've got two dams. They can have mine. Well, I mean, they need they assess them and, you know, there's vegetation considerations. They've got to look at the other species that are in that dam. But there are ways that people can really get involved in, in learning more about these fish. So as I, I, as I, I think I, I found said... found a long-necked turtle in my dam the other day, which completely surprised me. I don't wow. know how I got there. Well, water is an amazing thing, isn't it? I mean, we always say that in the garden. If you, if you build a frog pond, you know, they will come. And uh, all you need to do is kind of create the, the, the kind of environment that's required for biodiversity. And the biodiversity will turn up eventually. And sometimes it's quite surprising what turns up. Mm. It's maybe not what you, you're expecting or you're aiming for. But um, I've got so many mosquitoes too. I'm really, <laughs> I'm really keen. I mean, I've got lots you have of frogs. lots of microbats then. I've got, no, I don't. Are you sure? It, well, I don't know. It's very hard to tell. I've only seen one once. Well, you've probably got them then. But I... I do hope I've got microbats, and I've got a hell of a lot of frogs. Yes. It's absolutely deafening some nights. It's true. That's the, one of the biggest tips they have for building a frog pond is don't build it near your bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, deafening. you get, you no, get I used love it. to those sounds. I, I mean, love it. I love it. I mean, one thing is it's not, it's not quiet. My place is not quiet. There yes. is no traffic noise except on a bad day when I get a bit from the highway. Yes, but the the frogs of a night are so loud. Yeah, it's just incredible, isn't it? And it's, I mean, once you're used to that sound, it's, I've it's not a, loud I've at all. I've put a microbat box up, ah. hoping that that will get used. Did you make it, or did you no, get it through? No, I got it from Tesla. From Tesla. Tesla um, moved those things. Yes. Ah. That's interesting. And they're just round the corner from me, so I'm always happy to trot on to Tesla. I think it's a great place. Oh, fantastic. Mm. There's also um, La Trobe Uni run yes. a fantastic project, and you can get a flat-packed nesting box for almost anything. Cheap as chips, great instructions. They just pop it in the post and send it out. I think it's the, one of the – it is a really great little present for a kid yes. as well. Yep. Uh, or just, an adult. Yes, that's very true. I'd be very happy if somebody gave me a kookaburra box. Yeah, right. Because kookaburras are one species that are struggling because they're losing their nesting sites. Absolutely, and they need big, tall trees. Like I've been Which sticking we nesting keep knocking boxes down. on my house and all mm. sorts of things for the – for the rosellas, but but they they do need those those larger areas, and uh, even just coming through came through Royal Park last night and at dusk, and I saw it wasn't even a hollow yet, you know, it was just where a branch had fallen. There was sort of those those rough fissures of the of the broken mm. branch, and then I could just see this little uh, lorikeet face poking out. <laughs> I was like, wow, that is. And I think I think our, our desire to be tidy in gardens is such a problem because leaving dead trees with holes in them. Oh. It's so important. Having dead sticks in the garden yes. is as a launching pad. I have, often when I'm giving presentations, I show an image of a, a garden I built in West Footscray 10 years ago with a friend, and we put in quite a large pond. And, you know, I dug the pond, but it, I did it. It was, a, it was a completely bare garden. We had bulldozed um, what was there to, to make space for the new garden. And um, I stuck a, stuck a big branch in a, a mound of soil to sort of indicate where the tree was going to be planted later. And it, it ended up staying in the garden, this stick in the, in the mud, for about two years. Right. But what it meant was within days, before there was a plant in that garden, all of the bird species were visiting our pond because there was a really a safe perch route. to land yes, on. And yes. it, was, um, it was just the biggest lesson to me. You know, you say it all the time, but you don't even have to grow a tree and let a stick go dead. You don't even have to wait for that. You can actually just go and get a stick and jam it in the ground mm. um, and, and actually create that habitat this afternoon, if you well, want. Well, when I moved into my place, there were no small birds. 
And now, and I think, you know, having got thousands of grevilleas and salvias planted, I've got small birds everywhere. And I recently um, found a, a bird bath and I put it out the front and I put it surrounded by, so you can't really see it. The little birds just love it. Yeah, it's a Because joy. they've got so much protection. Yes. And it's not there for me to look at, it's there for the birds to use. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting kind of distinction, isn't it? Mm. Like, I mean, we've got a bird bath position, so I can kind of see it from the kitchen. But you know, you just you do think, gosh, I need more, don't I? Like, yes. as soon as you've got one, you realise I could have them everywhere really? and they'd be yeah. used all the time. At the moment, um, we've actually had the first. No, I, I was about to digress into Indian miners, but um, no. oh, okay. We just need to go into a quick delay. We're just going to have a moment, so I need you all you to think. You need to think your most precious garden thought for fifteen seconds whilst we reset the system, and hopefully, we can get to your calls. You're listening to Community Radio. 3CR. 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 8.55am. All right. Well, that was fairly quick. That was excellent. Hopefully. I mean, that's <laughs> if anyone can hear us, but I'm sure we'll find out soon enough now if that disappears. let's see if we can go to Alex from Beaconsfield. Round green. Round green. Alex, <laughs> are you there? Oh, no. Oh, holy moly. Holy That's right. Take him, take him out again in case they need to fix something else. Ugh. So line and then the green round. Gosh, we could talk about, yeah, we had the first flock of Indian miners roll into town in the last couple of weeks, and I'm first thinking... Flock, like, I haven't... In season, or you've never had them before? Rarely seen... Well, oh, no, really? we have them in town, okay, but it's the first I've seen, and, you know, they rolled in like... A ball of thugs. Like, they're like, you know, they turn up as 20. Oh, they're, and they're big bullies. They're so smart and so charismatic. <laughs> and you just like, it's amazing. And interestingly, they turned up where the ravens hang out. And so I thought, yeah, here we go. It's about to be like an episode of Greece or, you know, like some, you know, gang, <laughs> gangland sort of thing. But anyway, it'll be interesting to see if they go again. because Millie, I get... Just in autumn, I get a huge increase in the Indian miners, and only in autumn I get the starlings, and they come for the grapes. Yeah, right. Because the valley is full of grapes, of course. Sure. Yeah, and I guess it's probably, you, you would have a similar, you know, you have such such distinct seasons, the colder weather. I do watch, like, the kookaburras only come at the end of summer, you know. There's quite a lot of seasonal m- movement of birds. The kings for me, the king parrots. Yeah, sure. They, they disappear. They obviously go up up the hill for the whole of summer when it's too hot. Mm. And this year I've had them occasionally over the summer because it hasn't been as hot. Mm, mm. But the kings now are coming back in huge numbers. I had two in my garden yesterday. And I never see, I mean, Ringwood, I never see the king parrots around around here. So That's exciting. That was really you exciting. You lose your mind, don't you? I couldn't you? take a photo, though, because I threw some leaves in the window frame. But I, it's in my mind. Yeah, take a photo on your Mental mind. image. Mental yeah, image. Yeah. <laughs> There's so much going on. We should talk about some of the plants that we've brought yes, in. Yes, let's I mean, all right, do that. I'm go. Gonna, I'm going to talk about something really nerdy. Um, it looks like But that's breakfast. what we do here, isn't it? <laughs> well, I, look, one thing I, I was just thinking last night that I, one thing that I love about gardening, and we can, you know, I've, I've, got, I've left some other things on the ground because we've been talking a lot about native plants and native fish this morning, but I thought I'd just talk plain old vegetable gardening and, and come right back to the humble roots of talking about 
how much I love growing broad beans. <laughs> and when I say how much I love growing broad beans, I mean I love growing broad beans. Looks like there's a mix of seeds you have there. I have a mix of seeds. And these are, like, this is something that I think is, is so interesting. Some people will say, you know, obviously you can have been, a lot of people are planting their broad beans in autumn. Um, many gardeners will plant sort of a staggered few batches so mm. that they're getting an extended harvest. Um, some cool climate gardeners I know actually just plant sort of late winter, early spring, and they find that, then they're not wasting that kind of winter growing period with something kind of chugging along really slowly where you could be growing some sort of quick turnaround turnips and daikon and all that lovely stuff. So there's different ways people approach that sort of extended harvest. But one thing that I've really done over the last few years is increase the amount of varieties that I'm growing. So even in the humble old broad bean, there is a huge mm. range of cultivars that are available. And I found them really useful in different ways. So I've got some big seed here, which is a variety I've been growing for at least 15 years. So I sourced this from the last house that I rented in, in Melbourne before I moved to the country. And we rented two houses over the same family over a period of 10 years. Mm. And the second house we rented was the family home of Yildiz and Regiab. And we moved in when they had to go into aged care because they're in their 90s. And when we looked at the garden and when we went to move, you know, to move into the house, the entire double block was filled with these broad beans. <laughs> like, I think we broke in and stole a feed of broad beans before we were even living in the house, you know. And I, I grow a few of um, Reg's things. I have his garlic as well, which I've been growing for 15 years. But um, this is a, a fantastic broad bean. It's uh, actually self-seeded in my garden. Oh, how fantastic. So we've got a lot of broad oh, beans cool. that just pop up. But it's, they're massive. Yeah, it's not got particularly, it's not really full, like which is the thing you'll see when they're out of season, you won't yeah. get a full set. Um, but big broad bean, really lovely big pods, just absolutely. And can I say broad bean is one thing that I only eat out of the garden. I do not like bought Oh, you could. You, the only place you can buy them is it's at Joe's Farm in series where you can buy yes. Joe's broad beans. You need the fresh ones. Eating years. them if they've been dried and rehydrating them, they they don't taste good. Well, great. I don't I mind them as a, as a legume as well. You yeah. know, that's the other thing. You know, you can make a falafel out of this or... or that would be better to break them up. Yeah, yeah. To, to blend them up. So, I mean, that is a fantastic variety for that. And it's quite quick. So it's the earliest variety in the garden. Next to it, I've got this fantastic red-seeded variety. That's which is, lovely. Which small. is known as Epicure. Small. Not, yes, small, but not, not when they're fresh. When they're fresh, they're quite a lovely mm. seed. They fry up a kind of pinky-purple colour. But the, the thing about this particular broad bean is also quite a big, tall plant. Don't forget you can eat your flowers and leaf tips and all of these things right the way through the season. But this one had the most incredible floral display I've ever seen. So still that beautiful black and white flower which if you're a bee is like a neon landing strip like that's what <laughs> that 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 flower look closely at a broad bean flower and then imagine you're a bee and and you can see it from a mile off but this thing had clusters of flowers on it that were grapefruit size really? like a bunch of flowers from those bunches it only really ever set one pod from each of the bunches but mm. so ornamental that I thought right that is that is going into the ornamental and those I've got about 10 seeds left that are actually earmarked to go to Werribee Mansion because the guys are growing silver beet in the parterre in winter now with the mm. local seed community they're looking for lots of ornamental veggies so I did promise them I do think that I do think broad beans are beautiful totally beautiful but that one it's called Epicure it's got a red seed I've never seen a, a, a cluster of flowers there's of course brown flowered 
broad beans. I found they didn't produce much in the way of pod for me, but they're very pretty. There's the crimson flowered broad bean. It's a smaller plant. And I'll quickly get through the third one, which is this is one you can get at the big box, big seed companies. This is one called Coles Dwarf. It is a really stout little plant, about, you know, a metre high. Um, and it Which would be great for a lot of gardens. Great for small gardens, yes. containers, any of those things. And, and the thing that's so wonderful about this little plant, apart from its size, is it produces quite a few, like a number of stout little pods. They're about as big as your little finger. And as opposed to this sort of big pod that to eat it whole is like eating a pillow because yeah. it's full of so much fluff, <laughs> these are really packed with seeds and they're fantastic as a whole pod. So we tend to use them even just with dips. Um, you know, just like a snow pea, like you would a snow just pea. Just eat yeah. them whole, and yummy. You know, that one sort of sits in that and kind that of slightly later season as well. And and it's called this is Coles Dwarf, as in the shop. Yeah, mm. um, Mr. Coles, who who probably also developed the variety. <laughs> but um, yeah, I just think you know, for me, this is a humble little plant, and this is there's one more. I've got another one called Tripoli, which I only grew out the seed, so I haven't really tested it properly in a in a spot. So that'll go out, and I'll watch it. You know, I'm sort of doing the I'm doing the broad bean, bean trials at my in my driveway garden, so it's about 10 meters, <laughs> 13 meters long this year, and yeah, to grow both fresh beans, but then also dried beans that yep. we can then eat uh, in curries and you know. Soups. How do you dry them? I just let them dry on the plant, really. Yeah, okay. Just hang them, just pick and hang, and yep. and then shell. So, yeah, look, just I think there's so many. There's so many nuances that you can get into. It doesn't matter what plant it is. Even the humble broad bean can, can keep your interest, you know, in so many different ways. But, yeah, I'd really, really encourage people to have a look out there and see if they can get their hands on some different varieties and, mm. and find some that are really good for their garden. Yeah, and there's a number of different companies that do seeds. Now, it seems that Alex just hung up, so let's have... <gasps> Alex just... Alex, we're having trouble with the phones. <laughs> Come on, Alex. just wandered off. So, let's hope that... Fingers crossed. We pick up Alex now. Alex, are you there? Yes. Oh, yeah. We have a caller around the nation. How are you, sir? It's a privilege. It's an absolute privilege to speak to three of the best gardens communicators on everything to do with gardens because I need your support. How can we support you, Alex? Well, I'm... Well, I'm a grumpy geriatric, but I am concerned about the errors and perceptions in the history of plant collections in Australia. Uh, At Cranbourne Gardens, for instance, there's a sign that very correctly describes how the eucalypt came to have its name. But on the top of the sign, I'm offended by the fact that it says that Cook was the first to take Australian plants back to London. Now, I have huge respect for Cook and Banks and Solander. I think they've made an incredible contribution. But what about William Dampier, 71 years before, 1699? William Dampier made many collections on the Western Australian coast and the islands off the coast. And uh, it's interesting that uh, this was his second trip And although he's sort of regarded as perhaps a pirate or a buccaneer or something like that, no one refers to him very much as a naturalist. But he collected 23 plants there and pressed them and preserved them so they got back to London and they're in museums in London and Oxford now, many of them are. But 
The two plants that really are striking that he collected was Sturt's Desert Pea and the Diplolaena grandiflora. Oh, I love so, the Diplolaena, yeah. Well, I want justice for <laughs> William Dampier. It's an interesting thing you're using the word justice Sturt for, for him. I mean, Sturt, Sturt stumbled on them in the desert what, 150 years after they were collected, but their name for Sturt. There's quite a few Dampier loved and, um, you know, in West Australia is a really present name. Um, yeah, the Dampier Peninsula. But I've got to be really cheeky, Alex, and go, I, I understand this is important, but how about we just... Uh, Yes, justice is not the word I would use about those those um, those collections. And I think you're going to find that we're going to have some really fantastic and fascinating conversations about the way we view plants have been collected and the knowledges that are held around them and where they're held. And well, Q so for the first time is now beginning to take its colonial history uh, very seriously, because Q would be the centre. As, colonial they've just done their wrap, um, which is called a, reconcilia- a reconciliation action plan. I mean, I heard Andrew Laidlaw referring to the the name of that swamp um, mm. for the first time in the history of that gardens recently at the Australian Landscape Conference, and I was I was like it, it I was thrilled to hear it. So I, I hear what you're saying, Alex, and I agree. Those blokes get a lot of attention, and there's some other blokes, and there's some other non-blokes, and there's some other other people who are big contributors. I mean, I, I, I've got to say, I, I had the privilege of seeing some of the rare books um, with the botanical illustrations, and I saw some of Bowers' amazing illustrations that were done on the Flinders journey. And I was staring at these incredible pictures that I believe he painted by a colour system. So he recorded colours in the field with a thousand number system and then he made those incredible yeah. illustrations. Wow. Um, yeah, brilliant yeah. work, isn't it? Brilliant work. It... But did you know that, you know, they had an Aboriginal guide on that ship mm. um, who who travelled with them for that whole circum um, mm. navigation of Australia. And, you know, I, I know full well how they managed to get as far as they did and collect as many plants because they had that person facilitating that mm. for them. And, and so I think, Alex... I reckon, you know, when you talk and, you know, that's the text on screen is history of plant collections in Australia, let's talk about it. Yeah, let's talk about it and let's learn more. And when you think about it also, we very rarely hear about Empress Josephine's collection. If you think Mm. about the river red gum, which is called Eucalyptus camaldulensis, well, that's because she sent it down to her Italian Mm. uncle, Mm. whose gardener was the first to name it. Yeah. And it's the only Italian named eucalyptus and I, I think that you know for me and this is you know i made that point about autumn leaves and perspective earlier it's very difficult to put into words or to communicate this but i feel like we can sit the best thing we can do is sit in a little bit of a middle ground a bit of a gray area about how we understand our plants and how we understand knowledge i mean I, we all love that binomial naming system because mm. it's really useful for us but you know, it's not necessarily the only way you can refer to a plant or the only way you can know a plant is by knowing its genus and species. You know, there are so many things you can know about a plant. And people in this country know plants from 60,000 years of mm. of using or having a relationship with or knowing when to go and collect it, knowing when to go and collect the fruit, but knowing when to go and collect the bark to make the, you know. So I think 
I think when we talk about the history of our relationship with plants and understanding them, that it is in this country in particular so much more exciting and nuanced and it's outside of even our understanding of how to understand things mm-hmm. and I think that that is extremely exciting. So, if, yeah, grow a Dampira because they're bloody gorgeous. They're like, uh, like little blue eyes in the garden. Beautiful. But, um, oh, amazing. Uh, but and yeah, it, you, you're right, Alex. It's so much more complex than some of the little signs in botanic gardens can ever really express, isn't it? And I know they try pretty hard, but gee, they should be <laughs> correct in what they say. I think. Oh, look, and it, isn't it interesting that it took Bruce Pascoe to really peel the scales off our eyes to see how Aboriginals used. The plants, they, they just had them, they depended on them. And how they farmed. Just, yeah, absolutely, for every part of their habitation, from, you know, tools to protection to food and everything. Now, Bruce Pascoe has definitely done us a great service by writing his book. Mm. Thank well, you we for... need someone else to uh, really highlight this, I think. There's lots, and of, it's lots interesting of people that... out there. And there's lots of women even, out there too. Even... And I think that's, for me personally, I, I think that's a really important thing too to understand that in many, many um, parts of Australia, you know, plants are, are really very much embedded in women's knowledge and, and women's business. And, and we don't we don't necessarily have the right to know a lot of things and that's that's something that I think is a bit challenging for for Western cultures to realise that you're probably not going to get told everything there is to know about <laughs> yeah. that because you're not no, ready. No. But, but yeah, the, it's right, Alex. It's, we need more voices. And Bruce has done this amazing thing and he pulled together in a way that... And he's so welcoming. His language is like, come on in. But, um, I mean, it was wonderful. The Australian Landscape Conference a, a couple of months ago, the very first speaker was Margot Neal, who is a historian and a curator of... of she was wonderful. She was amazing. And she didn't talk about landscapes. She talked about the concept of country and she explained it to this room. It was, it was, I think it actually set a tone for this conference, which has never been set before. And the wonderful thing about that conference has always been its really broad worldview and, and you know, having people from all over the world yeah. talk about landscape. But to set the tone of that conference with someone telling you trying to explain to a room full of people who work in the landscape, who work in all parts of the world and in particular Australia on landscape, to try and help them understand that understanding of country, that it's your whole body. It's not even just your mind or your thought or mm. your eyes. It's, you know, and it, it was so generous for her to come and, and try and explain that to people. You know, I, I just thought it was such a wonderful thing. And you know, there are lots of voices, and I think that, for me personally, the other exciting thing is that they're not necessarily just botanists or, you know, ecologists. They're, they're all sorts of disciplines um, that come into this understanding. Once you start seeing plants as part of that much bigger picture, um, which we all un- understand as gardeners, you don't, you're not just looking to solve the problem of that plant. You look around that plant. You look at the environment yeah. it's in. You look at who's interacting with it, all of those things. I think that knowledge is like that and, and particularly... Australia's First Nations knowledge is so connected uh, that it is, you know, like I say, it's hard to explain it, and but has you take been a big depth. And has breath. been ignored. In fact, a classic example of it being the women's voice being ignored is Burke and Wills poisoned themselves on Nardu. They'd seen Aboriginal people eating it, but they'd never seen the, how the women prepared it. So yeah. when they tried to eat it, they'd 
didn't prepare it correctly because <laughs> you know there's a, there's a collection knowledge. of uh, of Nardu from currency uh, from not from what's the creek. Um, from that particular Nardu in the herbarium in uh, in in Melbourne, Melbourne, actually, Pina's shown me that from about eighteen. You know, wow. it's uh, amazing. But that is some people debate that now, Virginia, as a scientific fact. But geez, it's a good story. <laughs> yeah. And and it is true. It does show their arrogance that they'd been fed actually by the local people mm. for for quite a long time. And mm. yeah, when they they didn't they didn't know. They, that they had to be prepared carefully to, to kind of um, make it safe to eat. But, uh, yeah, exciting times, I think, for gardeners and Australians. Well, and, and it's wonderful to have people, wonderful communicators like you three ladies who can, you know, cover such a huge range of understanding of plants and the planet and where we live. It's just helpful. Well, thank so you. I think thank you very much, Alex. We appreciate oh. that. I'll leave you with it. Thank you. Uh, always Bye. feel lucky, Thanks, Alex, to be a gardener. I think uh, and it's next, such a gift. Yeah, it is. And it next is. we'll go to Ian in Sunbury. Hello, Ian. Hey, guys. How are you going? Hey, Ian. Yeah, how are you going? Um, oh, yeah, all right. Just out on a very nice walk this morning. I've, um, yeah, I'm just uh, walking through uh, parklands out here and... All the birds and the like, nice blue sky and all that. It's great. That yeah. sounds absolutely beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going down to Aldi to get some bits and pieces. <laughs> um, yeah, look, um, uh, I've actually, someone mentioned broad beans before. I've just put broad beans in now. Is it too late, do you think? No, nah, <laughs> I should have done it a few weeks ago, but I'm doing it now. Um, yep. So no, good good time to, to plant. It it sort of depends. They can sit pretty slowly, but um, I mean the other benefit that I didn't mention is you know like broadies are a fantastic green crop too. If you've got excess seed and you don't want to cook it and eat it, um, you can chuck it in anywhere really, and it'll it'll work away to fix, kind of fix some, some nitrogen, nitrogen um, in its yeah, in its roots. The bacteria will, and um, yeah, so yep. so good plant all round to stick anywhere really. Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. it's it's yeah. No, they 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 seem to do okay. Uh, well, they did when I was in Faulkner anyway, but uh, uh, we'll see how they go out here. But, um, um, yeah, just a, just a question. Uh, I've got uh, chooks out here, and the girls have... Uh, um, I've had the issues... Uh, I think I had the issues pretty much this time last year, but they've got mites. What sort of mites, and, Ian? Oh, they're these, those little tiny black things. Um, I'm not sure what sort of mites are, but I, I went to the vet and they got, gave me some stuff to, to, to give the girls. Are and, they the, uh, the blood-sucking mite that go red? Yeah, I think so. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. yeah, 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 yeah. I think so. And, and uh, last year, one of the one of the one of the girls was looking real shabby, and I, yeah. I I took her down to the vet, and they said, oh yeah, those might, you know, the, yeah, they said that it'll, it'll make them anemic and could possibly, you know. Kill we nearly them. lost one. I'd never had it happen, and um, had a terrible infestation not oh, long ago. Sorry. I don't know whether it's yep. this year or yeah, maybe. I mean, I'm not far from you. Maybe it's just something. You know, I've had yeah. since I was. Nine years old or something, and and had never had it happen. But might yeah. be just going around at the moment or something. No, they're pretty present. Yeah, yeah. I, treat, I treated the, I I treated the chook house last year. I gave uh, the, the vet gave me some stuff to, to you know give them um like, uh, you know uh, uh, some liquid. Um, yeah. So I, I give them that each night, and then I've got that pestine stuff that I, yeah, I give sure. them a dust every night. Oh, the girls really like that. Jesus, they love a dust bath, <laughs> don't they? We, we, we did a similar thing. We had the the vet gave us. It's kind of it's like sheep dip or something. It's oh, yes. it's like, you know without getting vetty, it's like an ivermectin, I think. So like a spot on yeah. for dogs to use. But the other thing that I use, it was quite expensive. Um, 
but it is available is diatomaceous earth, uh, which is oh, yes. yeah fossilized, basically fossilized tiny little. Um, I think they're a, a, like a crustacean, and they yep. are sharp as sharp as can be. So for the mites, it's like walking al- across glass. Um, yep. And it, it is used horticulturally. Sometimes yeah. people use it in a in a little bit of pest control. Snails okay. and slugs. Yeah, sometimes but they'd it, use it is it. quite. You get it from a feed store. I mean, it was fifty bucks for a big bag, but I actually just mixed a bit of that into their gravel dust bath. And I mean, yep. I spent an entire day cleaning out their coop and their perch because they were on the perch. You never see them, and then suddenly you see mm. them everywhere. And I used my flame weeder. <laughs> I just spent a day in the chook house flame weeding the walls. So as soon yeah, as I saw good it, idea. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I, I've got some. Yeah. I've got some nasty, nasty spray to, to, to you know, insecticide spray that I yeah. bought at the, at the pet shop, but I haven't actually opened it. I don't know if I'll use it. Oh, yeah, but, I didn't uh, want no. to, yeah, truthfully. But the, the other thing, Ian, that I did a bit of investigating, and there was one of the um, – we haven't done it, but I might do it. You know, there's multiple people making this decision. So, But I spoke to one of the um, pest insect breeders in Adelaide, who listed one of their predatory mites that's often used in horticulture in mm. glasshouse mite control as actually effective against the... It's called the blood-sucking mite, I think, the red, red, red mm. mite. Um, and he said that you can release uh, these predatory mites and that they actually will predate on those other mites. Um, oh, right. Yeah, so, okay. and he said that they'll yep. establish in the mulch and the soil. Oh, cool. They'll establish around the garden, so you can actually release them. So I haven't done it, um, but it was certainly something that might be worth investigating because, yeah, as you say, it's just the most awful thing. The mites actually hide in the fissures of the hutch or under the perch, and they come and they attack the chickens at night and suck yep. their blood. And oh, we nearly yep. lost one. We literally brought her back from the brink with mealworms and... Because she's broody yep. anyway, so we just thought she was yep. being broody, uh, which well, she does a lot. Um, got her. There's, uh, um, I had a quick look online, but uh, apparently there's a series of uh, plants, wormwood being one of them, and I've discovered I've actually got a wormwood in the garden. Artemisia. Um, mm. Yeah, and uh, that actually, um, uh, you can actually use them for, um, uh, you know, cut the, cut, the, cut the branches off and, and, and put them in your chook house. Um, and that actually, um, you know, um, put you know, uh, a bit of a deflector or a bit of a deterrent, deterrent for, for yeah. mice. I'm, um, sure, uh, I'm not sure how effective, but, I mean, I think it would be worth doing. A lot of people do say that, I mean, I, I'm sure Artemisia would not get rid of the mites, but I think if you, after getting rid of the mites, then start planting mm. those companion plants mm. around. Do you, do you know what other plants you could put in? Look, there's, there's a number of things probably in that same sort of family. Southern woods would be another one. A lot of people use garlic leaves or some of the alliums, um, quite effective. Look, I, I, I hesitate only because I work for a program that we were once a factual program. We're not anymore classified that way, but we still treat our program that way. And this is the yep. sort of thing that we would be like, is there any science on it? So, you know, having – and I've done it my whole life. I put the offcuts of the wormwood and all those sorts of things in the nesting box, and I'd never had a problem with mites, but, Ian, I'd never had this problem before in my life. So, And this is something that is quite profound. So I reckon do it um, definitely as a deterrent. Um, yeah. It's always good healthy – you know, I mean, wormwood is a medicinal plant. Absolutely. And they, yep. you know, ingested, I think the chooks will peck at it sometimes. People say that it can have effects wormwood. Um, but, yeah, I, 
I definitely wouldn't be relying on it, I guess, is, is the thing. But, yeah, the more fragrant, um, you know, probably find even things like rosemaries, all of those things are probably just <coughs> as effective and in that a, way. And have a look online because people do talk about what, has, what they have um, found successful yep. with yeah. their chooks. Yeah. yeah. And I think companion planting... Makes sense. We companion plant in the garden, in particularly in the vegetable garden. But there's very little science on it, Virginia. Yes. We've looked into this, and you'll, fi- you'll find that when I did a story on companion planting a couple of years ago, it was the first one we'd done in a while, um, and the language that I use is very, very careful because there genuinely isn't science. So, you know, that's where... Um, kind of folklore and all of these things. You can't say it's not. And this is this is the thing that also, you know, in the previous conversation we're having about um, traditional knowledge systems and traditional knowledges and, you know, just because something hasn't been investigated yet doesn't mean in a, it's in not a, In a Western science way. So I'm not saying it doesn't, hmm. um, but, you know, I, I, that kind of to deter might. So I've said it myself, I've thought it myself forever, but I'd never come across anything. And they're, like, I'm talking flame weeder for a week. Like, these things were out of control, the most disgusting pest I've ever had to deal with. I don't think there's any doubt that to get rid of things, you have to get rid of them. Yeah. But having an integrated approach and trying all those different things, whether or not, yeah, and we still need to work out the science of whether or not all those things work, but having a more holistic approach and not just using an insecticide or integrated pest management, not just using a chemical to deal with something. So trying all those other things and whether or not those, those things may not work individually, but doing them as a whole, will hopefully contribute to and, controlling and, the problem. Well, somebody the, the, the online, I, I, when I looked online, uh, the, yeah, the most, the most talked about plant was the wormwood yeah. um, in relation to this. Um, so um, I sort of uh, was looking around line to, to go and get one, and then I walked out. I've got a bit of a, a succulent <laughs> bed outside. I looked there down and is. went, holy crap, there's a wormwood. <laughs> <laughs> it's, pretty, it's in a pretty sad state. It's, it, it, it's, it's sort of been smothered by... Some of the succulent plants. So I've cut all, all them back, and I've given it a bit of a prune and haircut, and I'll, use, I'll, I'll throw the and I'll throw get, the, oh, the, yeah, the in. Get a few in, more. The and the other thing yeah. too, somebody has texted in that if you put garlic and apple cider vinegar in their water, that will help them. Now, who right. knows if this is true? Mm. That's, that's garlic it. and apple cider. Okay. Yeah. Garlic is good. Um, good in their feed. I've heard that the cider vinegar can be. So I'm a bit of a chook nerd. Sorry. Yes, please. Um, but yeah, I have don't. heard it can be good sometimes and not good other times because it, it acidifies their crop. Mm. And that crop, it's like a gut. Like mm. it's quite an important mm. um, biological environment. Yep. So sometimes, like you know, people say, like cider vinegar or kombucha or one of those probiotic things is quite good for us in that way. Mm. Um, yep. But it depends on what's going on for the chickens. So sometimes if they have a sour crop issue, then that can be and not we'll the best solution. Also so just cut up, a, cut, up a, cut up a garlic and a, a couple of cloves of garlic and throw it in their, in their water, water, water tank. Water I tend pot. to do like a little mash for them occasionally. So just chop up some, oh, yeah. some garlic, um, some herbs, you know, a bit of yogurt and some oats, mix it up and make them a little kind of... Special, oh, yeah. yeah, like a special little treat. You know how much they love a treat. And yeah, I, yeah, I, I also I, I think, Ian, that you'd want to not use too much apple cider vinegar because it is quite strong. You'd yeah, want yeah. it well watered down. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I might, I might, because I give them porridge every now and then, and oh, yeah. I, 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 well, I, I drop I, a bit of shell grit in, in the porridge because one of the girls, uh, the sh- shell gets a bit uh, thin at times, and um, so I do that sometimes just to give them, get it, slip them a bit of uh, shell grit. So I might make a, a poultice of of uh, of um, 
Yeah, you know, yeah. like uh, porridge and, 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 and garlic and, yep. and a few other risk, bits and pieces. At the risk of uh, getting so off gardening topic, I would say protein's really important too. If they've been, like the, like <laughs> the vet would have said, they're anemic, um, some high-protein food. And actually, when our little girl was gone, cat food was something that we were told to give her, which is what we fed her with a syringe and, of course and the mealworms. Thing, and, and the thing you know, with cat food is that it is very high in protein, much really higher high than dog protein. food. So, yeah, just just making sure that you, you get your kind of... This is such a tricky time for chickens, you know, they lose all their feathers, it's cold, yeah. and they're all just looking a bit run down anyway. So yeah. I'd make sure you yeah. give them plenty of protein. But I'm not a chookspert. You need Jessamy Miller in here. That's who you've got to have on the show for some, <laughs> uh, for some serious chook talk. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah, good good luck with it, Ian. I'm, I'm right alongside you, mate. I'll, I'll, I'll yeah. report back of how we go next year if we if we end up with uh, with another Yeah, so I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll, I'll probably give the chook house a good clean out. I might use a bit of this bloody horrible stuff just to try and cook, get, you know, get to, start, to base, you know, to base yeah. stage yeah. one. And then I'll, uh, I'll do a bit of... Uh, Research use, and if you can sink fifty bucks in it, you can use that DT, that diatomaceous earth, as well to do a similar thing. Like clean it all out, and you can dust it everywhere. It's perfectly safe. They use it yeah. for storing food, yeah, um, and grains in it. Like it's it's very safe to use with caution. Like you have to, you know, mask um, up. Yeah, but uh, it's 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 also a very natural product um, that yep. you can use to do a similar thing. So but, that's uh, what's it called again? It, it's called. DT is what it is. If you go to a, you, if you go to one of the kind of country farm supplies, it'll be somewhere down in the bird care sort of area, yep. um, or some of the feed feed places will have it. But it's diatomaceous earth, and I always want to say okay. diametaceous, or maybe it is diametaceous. No, diametaceous. Yep. Diatomaceous. No worries. <laughs> now it's a pretty right. amazing I'll, thing. I'll, I'll look that up. Yeah. Okay. Geez, it'll fix up a ch- pear and cherry slug real good. Yeah. But it's a bit expensive okay. when you can use wood ash. <laughs> Thank you very yeah. much, Ian. Yeah. No worries. I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. I'll yeah, do yeah, all the work. Please and I'll, do. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. Fantastic. All right, cheers. Thank you. See ya. Bye. It was our Grace Jones who, who nearly went, and she's such a feisty chicken. We, it was With so a name harsh. like Grace Jones. She <laughs> have to be. She's got this unreal flat top, and she's very assertive. So <laughs> <laughs> we decided it was the perfect name. Yeah. <laughs> this is the 3CR Garden Show and you are listening to Virginia Hayward, Chloe and Millie. And the phone number, if you would like to ring us, is 94190155 or text us on 0488 809 855. And we have somebody spelling it for us. It's D-I-A-T-O-M for the diatom. Diatom. Diatom is actually, I think, what they are. Yes. They're little, um, yeah, they're little fossilised um, old crustacean. If old you have crusty look, fossils. Old crusty fossils. If you have a look at them underneath a um, microscope, they're just tiny little, beautiful little shells, Amazing. like crustaceans. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, the diatoms, yeah. It's like walking, walking over glass. And yeah. Chloe, what have you brought in for us today? I brought in a set of plants that are very reliable plants. I've just um, mulched. I have the my front yard is just blanket flat, like the worst lawn ever. And I thought I'm sick of like trying to mow these weeds in summer when I just get dust in my face. Mm. So I got a big pile of mulch and I have mulched it and I just keep pulling out the little bits of weeds that try to come through. 
as they keep popping up. And I bought some plants because the soil isn't great, but I've mulched and that's about it. I'm doing it cheap. I'm doing it easy and what lazy you, as um, well. What have you mulched with? Bush mulch that the arborist dropped off. Right. So it free wasn't, mulch on a It was on a free demo. mulch. And I, I know it was free for a reason. There was a lot of cypress in it. Oh. Which isn't my favourite type of mulch and a lot of leaf litter in it. But anyway, it, it's broken It'll down, break it's browning down. off and, and um, it was free, so <laughs> I'll take it. I've bought in two different types of corriers, an orange flowering one and a green flowering one. So lime chimes, which Sue uh, at Bushland Flora grows and they've bred up there. So it's a really cute little cultivar. They only get maybe 30 centimetres wide and 30 centimetres high and they're quite they're quite an upright one. Hang on. Oh, big stretch, oh, and they've, wow. got, they've got quite a big for the size of the plant. They've got quite a long, big green leaf on them. Sort of almost more flower than it. the leaves are bigger than the flowers. But I mean, the flowers are bigger yeah. than the leaves. There's more more flower yeah. than the leaf on it. So the lime chimes that bushland flora do are fantastic, like really cute little corriers. And they have bred some beautiful corriers at bushland. Truly have mm. ember chimes, and there's a few white ones as well that you mm. can get. So I've got lime chimes. At the nursery and an, another ground cover choria, which is similar to the sort of the, the orange ones of the choria, Pulchellas, Autumn Blaze, Ring-a-ding-ding and Orange Glow are sort of the common um, orange flowered ground cover choriers. And they just, you put them in and they just grow. So the soil isn't super fertile and I've put in mulch to start getting that organic content in and starting to break up the compactedness of what the lawn used to be. And these plants that I've chosen, they're not like the showiest plants in the world and they're just sort of, you know, blobs of green at the moment, but they're good, reliable plants. You need, look, you need that, but you need those blobs of green. Absolutely. And again, we're doing a similar thing and in the front yard, doing it in stages, haven't got the second load of, or third load of free mulch yet. (laughs) So they're still still waiting for it. But, um, you know, that, when you're doing something like that, when you know there's going to be weeds coming back yeah. and you're going to have to manage that, like as much as I want a sea of stylidium in there, <laughs> that is going to be a challenge to manage grass around. So going for the, the green blobs first, the yep. shrub layer first and yep. the tree layer first is actually a really good strategy for long-term success. Yeah. I have got a lot of um, Coria Annie's Delight in my place which is at the moment beautifully in flower. And the yeah. reason I have it, I have very, I don't have any pink choreas and I don't have many white choreas. salvias. <laughs> yeah. The reason I don't have them is the rabbits don't eat Annie's Delight. Ah. They, they've wiped out so many of my other choreas, yeah. but they have left so Annie's Delight keeps appearing. Oh, good. Nice <laughs> one, Annie. Because she survives. Yeah. I mean, for me, this is the most, difficult thing mm. yeah. surviving the rabbits curries are always a go-to plant for me they're just so reliable and you can put them in pretty crappy soil and they just sort of they and just you can put them in thing. quite hard places where there's yeah not a I've, of I've got another cultivar called tucker time dinner bells <laughs> what a ridiculous thing. yeah how do you keep track you just like you put your whole brain power remembering curry cultivars <laughs> yes, that's, that's all so i know true but that they're growing um sort of around the edge of a, a drip line of a lily pilly and growing things around lily pilly is a little bit hard too. So the other, the gravilla that I bought in, oh, a big stretch. <laughs> I didn't see that little cluster of plants down there. Yeah, nice. so the gravilla that I bought in is another type that I've got growing on the other side of this lily pilly, big old lily pilly tree in the front yard. So gravilla mount tamboretha, it's oh, a nice. form of gravilla mm. lanigera. 
And um, it doesn't get eaten by the rabbits. Well, there we go. <laughs> there I don't go. have rabbit Let's issues. Just put it on the label. People do. <laughs> Should. <laughs> uh, we used to get that, that um, parameter for tolerance when I worked at Karanga. There are a lot of people will come in saying we have rabbit issues, so it, mm. is, it is a good thing to know. Uh, the Grevillea Mount Tamborethra is just a really nice little mounding plant. In full sun, it'll get a, little bit, get a bit bigger than what it does in shade. They do well in part shade as well. Really soft foliage. I think often when people are thinking about grevilleas, it's, you know, and, and, oh, and truth you used to be to, allergic to grevilleas. When I was a kid, foliage. I used to hate grevilleas. Yeah. Mum and Dad had a scarlet sprite in front of the letterbox. So yeah. fun thing to do when you're little is yeah. to collect the letters out of the box. Yeah. But I used to get annihilated by a grevillea all yeah. the time. So this is soft. It's taken me a um, long time to come around to yeah. them. <laughs> yeah. To get over the childhood trauma. Yeah. So these are yeah, these are super soft and you get little bundles of the flowers on the ends of the stem. So you just get these pops of, you know, reddy, pinky, watermelony colour. And they flower all year round. I never I, I try to give them a light prune once a year, but I never quite want to do it because they've all got always got flowers on them. Yeah. yeah. So the ones I've got them growing in the Grevillea Mount Tamboretha is growing in a line just along the front path to the front door. The ones at the driveway end of the of the line are in full sun and they're a lot fuller and a lot denser than the ones that are close to the front door and in a bit more shape, but they're still flowering, they're still doing their thing. And that was also old lawn that I turned that garden bed and I, that I turned into garden bed, added compost and then mulched on top mm. and so created you- little reservoirs as well. So, so that when you do water, that water stays and sinks into that area. Did you that. cover? Did you cover the grass with um, newspaper or cardboard? No, just really thick mulch. And it, it fresh mulch compacts down it, as it breaks it makes down. Makes soil pretty quick. Yeah. Did and you put little pockets of soil in as you planted, or are you just kind of going into that subsoil and leaving that high amount of mulch? Left a high amount of mulch. So, you know, we've, we've done 100 mil, 100, 150 mil of mulch. Mm-hmm. So then to plant the tube stock into that on top of newspaper or cardboard because, you know, we've got like a rope twitch grass and, you know, mixed, yeah, mixed okay. wet grass, um, using little pockets of soil. So I just dug up some soil out of another part of the garden and when I plant a tube I might put the equivalent of a 20-centimetre pot of soil or even yes. less around it just yep. to, to give it an actual planting. So I did a dog leg of the Coria Tucker Time dinner bells and the Grevillea lanidra originally in this other part of the front lawn that was horrendous too. Dug them up, dug the soil up with a mattock and mixed in a few, a, yep. a whole heap of compost. Right. And so then mulched so over the top of it. it is actually acting as a mulch as opposed to becoming yes. a new sort of soil layer. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it, I did, actually, one thing to stop the mulch rushing off down the path and into the driveway, just did a little um, gutter, mm. pulled the soil or dug the soil off from the edge of the path and yep. the mulch just sits in it and it stops the mulch from falling yep. down. You get little bits of, you know, yeah. that come off, but that's been really helpful in stopping because it is higher than the, than the ground level. Yeah, sure. It helps it from, stops it from running away. Just that simple act of kind of, um, yeah, that physical, yeah. physical, physical way of managing it. Yeah. It is such a challenging thing to do, but also... Very effective. Like, it is amazing how much you can achieve over a couple of years just with some free mulch. Oh, yeah. And lots of tubes. And, and weeding. Like, you've got to be prepared to, fo- you know, you don't just do it and walk away. You've got to follow it yeah. up and, and control. And we are at the point now where I'm talking to someone local about what plant we might be able to seed orchard in our front yard mm. for the local species and, you know, what is hard to collect and 
makes a useful plant in that way. And the, the, the stylidium C, the trigger plant C, might happen and might be the local triggers and we'll collect yeah, all the great. seed for the local bank. Yeah. But it's um, but you've got to get your grass under control Got to first. get it under control yeah. before you start putting in. I mean, it is the biggest challenge, isn't it, putting in any new garden. Yeah. And gardeners, professional gardeners, know it's so hard to not use that killer stuff because yeah. you know where, you know that if you're not there, who's going to follow up with that weed control? But um, mm. at home, you've got that luxury. And it's not just quickly. It's not very often that you have. You, sorry, you don't have to do that weed control for very often because the mulch will smother out mm. what's there. It's just those last few stragglers that are really trying don't to let stay one come there. back. Yeah, yeah, you just you just sort of pick them out and yeah. and if if them. you didn't. If you didn't want to get rid of it, you'd be so proud of the way it fought back. Yeah, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, you've got to, you've got to. There's a bit of respect thing. that yeah. goes there. Yeah. <laughs> respect the weeds. <laughs> yeah. We've got Peter from Point Lonsdale. Peter, are you there? Yes, uh, we've got a got a bug crawling around the back veranda, poking its nose into some wood. Um, it's just uh, a, about. Uh, 20 mil long. It looks like armour on it. And it's uh, got a grey stripe across its uh, midriff. Is it a long skinny thing with a bit of a snout? A bit of a snout and uh, and, and the, the legs and arms all look like they're in thin armour. Ah. I tell you, there is there are some great resources for this. I would always recommend looking up anything that Dennis Crawford mm. Um, so his his book, uh, which is called, I'll look it up. Um, is fantastic for mm, yeah, fantastic for all of, all of these resources. And he's also on Instagram and and Facebook. Um, and he's got a blog, a really good blog. One too. minute bugs. That's um, it. That's it, what I thought the book was. It sounds like it could be a weevil of some sorts or a beetle, Peter. But without without seeing it and not being um, not being uh, specialists ourselves, it is. Ah, it's called Garden Pests, Diseases and Good Bugs, which is a really fantastic diseases and good bugs. It's so comprehensive. And Dennis's photographs, you know, they're all his images. So, um, and it's Dennis? Dennis Crawford. Crawford. Yeah, yeah, that's a great book to have in your kit if, you, if you're interested in Oh, that's insects. great. Um, but, yeah, there's, there's so many. I, I, I made a little gate the other day. Um, and I used the old, been renovating my little old house, and I, when we pulled the back part of the house off where the outdoor dunny was that had been enclosed, you know, it's an 1890s cottage, mm-hmm. um, I kept all the timber, of course, uh, and I used these, the beautiful old, old posts that have got all sorts of, you know, evidence of 100 years plus on them as the fence post. And as I was putting the, the gate in, literally as I was putting it in, there's all these holes and notches and all this sort of stuff in these pieces of timber. There was native bees flying around, oh, like, past wow. me. I'm like, well, this one looks all right. Like, brand new hole in timber <laughs> and uh, checking it out as I was putting the fence post in. So, yeah, there's so many, so many insects that we'll visit. You know, most of them are not doing any harm, even if they are crawling in and out of a hole in the wood. Um, you know, so it's it's well worthwhile working out what something is. But look, there's lots of great resources online, and even like Instagram for identifying and you know with that community. Um, there's iNaturalist, which is an app that you can upload yeah. to, and then experts will help you identify things. And often there's also kind of citizen science reporting where you can say where something is. Um, and contribute by by using those sorts of things as well. So oh, okay. yeah, there's there's and, lots and of ways the to get an again, answer. The name of the book, the uh, the book. 
uh, pest diseases and good bugs, I think, or something. But if you garden you pest diseases and good bugs, there you go. Disease. Dennis, Dennis Crawford, right? Rate right. him highly. Yeah, he's lovely. Thank you very much. Yeah. Peter, I have a great Point Lonsdale story. My dad had a house down at Point Lonsdale, and he, um, we picked. There were some bugs inside, and I asked. I was at the time doing hort at Burnley and I asked my teacher and he gave me a person to ring so I rang these people because we were pretty sure that it was bad and he said oh yes point oh yes I saw a house yesterday and um, I said oh how was that and he said oh I've recommended demolition mm. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, would you please come and look at my dad's house immediately please <laughs> I better hurry Leave something leaning up against the doorway. <laughs> no. This is an old garden bench. This is what they were oh. getting into. Thanks oh, very nice. much, Peter. Thanks, Ben. Bye. 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 Bit of wood on the ground. It's amazing what uh, who who will make a home in there. Yes, mm. yes, mm. yes. Well, it's I mean it's just one of those things, isn't it? But yes. most of the bugs in the garden are good. And when you yes. decide to go and kill the bad ones, please make sure you don't kill lots of good ones at the same time. Mm. Totally. It's, yeah, that's why ID is so important and, and then you could actually get proper advice. I mean, it's kind of with the mites too, uh, sort of very, you want to know what it is because I, you, there's a lot of generic words we use yeah. for things sometimes and some of them are like a, a scaly leg mite is a much different sort of prospect to a, a blood fucking mite. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> There's a message on screen reminding us, now this was announced last week, but we'll mention it again, encouraging women in horticulture. They're having a sustainable floristry event. Enjoy an afternoon on the peninsula, and it's going to be on Monday the 31st of May at the Chryscove Flowers, 395 Western Port Highway. So you register at events at ewha.com. And you must register by the 23rd of May. So that sounds like fun, girls. Yeah, that would be great. Excellent thing to do. Um, I'm sure that we've talked a bit of fungi over the last few years. I know um, months. I know Greg Balderson was in, and, and he has uh, such a fascination. He takes the most beautiful photographs. He, he takes a wonderful photo. Um, but I wanted to, and I'm not showing you this because my little recipe is in the back of this book, because I actually forgot that until I just picked it up then. Um, but I wanted to show you this book, a friend of mine and someone that people might uh, be aware of, Alison Puglio, has written with Tom May, who's a mycologist at the RBG. And... Um, it's a book about foraging for mushrooms. So people might know if they've met Alison that she lives half of the year in Switzerland and half of the year in Australia. She kind of chases the autumn. And so she's, uh, she's, she's done a lot of her research into fungi. As an ecologist, she's a freshwater ecologist turned fungal ecologist. Um, she's become very interested in uh, the way people approach fungi, the way they have fears or myths around them, the way they're caught up in folklore, you know, and... Uh, having done a lot of the research for a PhD, which was about, you know, that that uh, way people interact with fungi, um, she's very interested in the idea of foraging. And of course, living in Europe, and being immersed in that culture of foraging, and then coming to Australia, where that culture is sort of emerging a little bit over the last ten years, she and Tom decided a few years ago, actually, this project's taken a long time, to write a book about foraging for mushrooms in Australia. 
Um, it is, it's, it's, it's largely based in southern Australia. I don't know how many tropical fungi people we have listening, but I have had a few people ask me about it. But I, I think this thing is the most wonderful book. So if you are interested in fungi in any way, whether it be for foraging for yourself, they go through and profile, I think, about 20 of the most common edible fungi that can be found in Australia. Alongside profiling that edible fungi, they profile many of the species that can be confused with it. Um, which is the important bit, yeah. which is really, really important. But it doesn't get to the eating bit until about halfway through the book. So what it provides is a, probably, I think, the most comprehensive field guide to understanding and identifying fungi, whether you want to eat them or not, um, in Australia. Because truthfully, and I mean, it happened yesterday, I picked a shiitake mushroom off my shiitake logs and I posted a picture on Instagram and someone said, what's the substrate? And I said, oak logs. And she said, really? Someone just told me I shouldn't pick oak, you know, no. because that's what death caps. I was like... It's not growing under an oak tree. It's not in a garret. You know, yeah. there's so many levels of you don't understand that you don't understand yet that you should not be thinking about picking wild fungi at all. So well, we have this problem in the botanic garden. Oh, completely. And mm, so, yeah. I mean, if you are going to forage for fungi, you really need to understand it. And Al, Al kind of says, I, I, I encourage people to be slow mushroom m- mushroomers to just learn one species really, really well. And learn to recognise it. I mean, the photograph she has, so you go to, say, one that people would see all the time, the flyer garrick, so that red mushroom with the spots. The spots are actually mobile because that's the veil of the mushroom exploding up onto the top of that mushroom. So on a wet day, you can actually slide those little spots all around the top of that mushroom. <laughs> so but, you know, that is a, a really common... Po- people know that is, that's one of the common poisonous mushrooms. There's, I think there's 20 photographs of that mushroom and she shows it looking in all the different ways you might find it. You know, when it's faded out, it might look like a pine mushroom to someone who doesn't know. You know, there's all of that. So she, what she's trying to do is encourage people people to really, really know the fungi. And to know it properly. And the other thing that I know, I mean, I know Al really well, and she's not really a mushroom eater. Um, you know, there are recipes in the back of this book. And when I did that for her, when I thought she was, it was just like for the pro, you know, she said, can I come and photograph you make, you know, can you do a little recipe? And it was really just for the pitch. And I didn't think it was actually going to make the book. So it's it's in there. But, but the other thing that is so important is it gives you a really grounded understanding of what fungi do in the landscape, why they're important. And as I say to people, it's not about you, everyone. You might get to eat some fungi, but they are playing a much bigger role. And the way that you go into the bush, you're not allowed to just go in and pick plants out of a national park. No. You're not allowed to do it with fungi. And you mustn't. So it is this, this, you know, with all that excitement, and we see, you see it all the time. People are excited about edible weeds in the urban environment. And you're like, don't pick that one. A dog just pissed on it. Yeah. Know? Like, so when people get excited, sometimes they can go too far. So it, it gives you a really, really beautiful grounding in understanding where it is appropriate to do this. You need to be really well educated when you're dealing with Fungi. Totally do, yeah. but you also need but you to can approach educate it. yourself. Yeah, yeah. You need and to approach it with respect. Whether yeah. you're in an exotic pine forest or a native forest, the rubbish that you leave on the ground, the blue collecting gloves, I can't tell you as someone who's I've been picking fungi for maybe ten years, the increase in rubbish in the forest alongside the increase in people who are interested in, in going out and picking fungi. You know, it, it's really, really easily related. So, it's and those blue hard, gloves it's are It's hard to understand, isn't it? Why pickers, would right? you leave them behind? Because yeah. people don't 
have that same attention. So I guess that I think this book, it's called Wild Mushrooming, A Guide for Foragers. It's been written by, you know, Tom May is the senior mycologist in Australia. For a long time, I think he was the only mycologist Mm. in Australia. He works for the the Royal Botanic Gardens uh, in Melbourne, but he's done this in his own time alongside Alison. I think if you're interested in mushrooms and fungi, not just for, for foraging, although there's some cracker recipes, Simon's Duck Gizzards, Razoo with wood bluets is in the back wow. here. Um, you know, uh, it's just, I just think it's a really wonderful book, but not just for foraging, just for understanding fungi. And, and I think the other thing with fungi is it is an area that is scientifically developing so fast. Oh, We're finding yeah, out in the so last much. 10 years, yeah. it, is, it is grown exponentially that the way that we have learned how much we've learned and the way that we're learning about yeah fungi. absolutely so not only are they really important organisms for us they're really important for for the the wider ecosystem and that you know that resonates i've said i've said it on the show many times like if you can get onto allison is also a, an amazing photographer so the illustration it's a beautiful idea book. in this book it's really easy to read and it is a beautiful it's book. Like, what is she talking about the what oh there's seven pictures of it that yeah really i can get my mind around and so i, I just think it's a bloody triumph actually because I know they wanted to approach it in a different way for a field guide they Mm. were trying to find a way of of telling this story that they thought was a bit they were getting calls all the time you know and they're like we need to put something out there that's going to assist people they're going to want to do it how can we try and help build the culture of respect for the forest of respect for the fungi and of caution um you know you can't run out with that book and blame them if you eat a poisonous mushroom, you know. You can't blame me if you pick a death cat because I posted a picture of a shiitake on a dead oak log. Yeah. You know, this is something you need to take your own responsibility. responsibility. Yeah. But also respect the forest and respect other pickers, respect that the fungi have a role in the ecosystem, uh, but get out there and look for them because they are amazing to find. And... Um, is it published by CSIRO? It is. It's a CSIRO, mm. it's a CSIRO book. So, yeah, I think it's... I Alison think it's, has actually promised to come on the show next year well, she's when she's in Australia. Bloody hard to pin her down, but <laughs> she's hard enough to have dinner with, mate. I don't know how you're going to get her on the radio. <laughs> but, no, she's a, she's a delight. And she will have walk, workshops and land care. Often it's easy to tack onto one of her land care events or something because um, they're... they're Sometimes they're allowed more people. There's always caps on things. But um, jump onto her website if you want information about workshops and bits and And there's even a lot of mushroom, uh, mushroom foraging workshops going on at the moment because it is mushroom season. So for your local area, to get to know the fungi around there? Um, local Blowing land the care. dark ones, ones yeah. that are stuck on the top of a caterpillar. Yeah. They're just amazing. Yeah, there's puffballs. They blow my mind. Earth stars. Yep. Pretty mouths, that's a good one to find with the kids. There's so many things. The it's little a, look, blue it's just, ones. Yeah. Mm. I mean, we're nerds. We could just talk about this all day. But I think, the, I think it is very important that people actually do take responsibility. As you're saying, Millie, you have to learn this stuff yourself. Yeah. Not and anybody excited, else. Excited to go and pick it, but just still, you know, look after the forest. Don't park mm. your car on the nice bit of remnant vegetation on the side of the road, peeps. Yeah. <laughs> now, I hope you've all enjoyed the show today. We say goodbye from the 3CR Gardening Show. Best wishes till next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. 
For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.